Hey everyone, I'm Mo and I'm the CEO and founder of Product Faculty. Today on the CPO Mastery Podcast, we're excited to host Bradley Horowitz, who is the VP of Products at Google. In this podcast, we're going to talk about what sets apart the best 0 to 1 PMs from the rest. How the best 0 to 1 PMs thrive in chaos. It's not like they like chaos or enjoy it. They don't let the many unknowns of the role throw them off balance. We'll also touch on how PMs can develop their long-term thinking skill set by developing the ability to write science fiction, imagining the future by moving beyond the edges and constraints that we're used to. Well, we're going to be covering a lot, so let's dig right in. I'd love to kick it off by learning a little bit about your current role. Could you give us a brief snapshot of your scope and mandate at Google? So you introduced me as the VP of product at Google. I am a VP of product at Google. We could probably fill a small auditorium with the VPs of product at Google. And over the years, I've looked after many products. Presently, I'm an advisor to Google. So I've stepped out of an operational role where I had a team and a mandate and a set of products. And I did that for about a decade at Google. And more recently, I'm an advisor. So I'm at large and helping Google in any way they ask, specifically around innovation lately. I do a lot of mentoring and sort of citizenship type things for Google. But where my passion lies is really around innovation. And one of the last things I did as an operator at Google was launch an internal incubator called Area 120. And I'm still quite attached to that and help out quite a lot with the operations and philosophy around that effort. Amazing. I've met some Area 120 founders and it's so, and they mentioned that your work with you was, it was awesome. That's great. Let's get into the core PM skill set. You've had the opportunity to hire and develop many product managers. What sets apart the strongest PMs from the rest? It's a great question. So important because hiring is, you know, one of the most powerful levers we have as leaders to bring in the right people makes all of the difference. So of course, there's sort of the baseline, you know, table stakes type stuff around intelligence and diligence and ethics and work ethic and all of that stuff. So we'll, we'll sort of put that aside and say, that's not the easy part. That's hard too. But once you find candidates that sort of clear that bar, you ask the question, what sets apart the very best from the rest of the cohort? Some things that come to mind for me, one is the ability to thrive in chaos. And that's not that they like chaos or enjoy chaos, that would be a problem. But any product effort, especially one that is just launching the sort of zero to one effort is going to step into many, many unknowns. And there are some people for whom that is an overwhelming experience. And there are others who thrive and just love putting structure together, that bootstrapping phase of sort of building something from literally nothing. And so finding people who are great at that and enjoy that is essential. I often find if they have experience in sort of non-technical domains, like working in a restaurant is chaos. You know, if you've ever sort of worked in where you literally have flames and knives and, you know, a scenario where there's like this very active chaos and time pressure, people need their food and it needs to be hot. And, you know, like that environment is not unlike some of the parallel pressures we experience building products. And so people who sort of demonstrated they can do that, you know, I'm not out recruiting at restaurants, but people with a background that might be more than just tech and sort of demonstrates that they can thrive in high pressure 
chaotic situations, you know, that's a plus for me. A couple other things is leadership. For a lot of these zero to one efforts, you're going to be convincing others to sort of follow you into the unknown. You have to be honest with them and authentic and basically say, we don't know the answer and I don't have all the answers, but let's take a trip. I can see five inches in front of us. And I know that the effort we make sort of that first step is going to provide insight. And then we'll decide, are we headed in the right direction? Do we need to 180 back there or pivot 15 degrees? And some people have this ability to sort of inspire others to take that journey with them. And I think PMs, because it's such a, a matrix role and you've got to sort of bring along organizations with you, that kind of leadership is also something that I look for. Just a few more qualities, and I won't get into them quite as deeply, but empathy, being able to sort of see the customer's perspective, the user's perspective, the partner's perspective, really sort of imbibe the people that we're serving and, and see the product and the effort from that perspective is important. Another one that is overlooked, I think, too much is the ability to see with fresh eyes. One of the great values about a new hire is they haven't yet learned the acronyms, drunk the Kool-Aid, sort of, you know, gotten dyed in all of the baggage and philosophy and history of the product. They just come here and see, oh, that doesn't make sense. That's broken. And, you know, those of us who've been here, like we know the backstory. Oh, it's like that because, you know, this organization didn't and we couldn't and we tried. And, you know, there's layers and layers of history around every, you know, failure in the product. But those with fresh eyes can sort of come and just basically call it and call it like they see it. The ability to sort of clear your brain of all of the legacy and all of the baggage and all of the excuses and sort of reapproach your product with fresh perspective is something I really, really value. And of course you get that from new hires, but the best PMs amongst us can sort of wipe their history clean and reapproach the product again from that fresh perspective. The final thing I want to add, which is again, sort of in the category of minimum viable hire, but attitude makes all the difference. You know, there are some people for whom everything is a crisis and it becomes a drag. And it's sort of like their attitude towards problems just makes working with them hard. And there are other people where it's an adventure. And it's sort of like when you're on that road trip with a friend and you get a flat tire. Sometimes like for some people, it'll just be a drag, like, oh my God, I can't believe this happens. There are other people for whom it's an adventure and you know you're going to tell the story of the flat tire for the rest of your life to your grandkids. And those are the people that I prefer working with. And so that sort of ability to thrive under chaos and take it all in stride and do excellent work, but still have a sense of humor and a great attitude about it. This is, I think, what separates the very best from the merely great Aside from solving immediate customer needs, product managers are also innovating on where their product should be heading in the future. How can PMs develop their long-term thinking skill set? How can PMs pick up on these key trends? I like to think of that skill as sort of like the ability to write science fiction. This is sort of what science fiction does. Like imagine a world where, and then you fill in the blank with some crazy proposition but you don't just stop there, you sort of play it out and say, what would that world look like? 
And, you know, an example I think that is a good one is Gmail. Imagine a world where you had infinite storage, where you didn't have to delete or curate emails and sort of manually drag them and file them. I think very few of the attendees of this conference will be old enough to remember this, but there was a time when you would get a dozen emails a day and your job was to read every one and manually sort of, you know, file them away and you'd open it up tomorrow and there'd be 12 new ones. And that was the way email worked. And quickly it became evident that that was changing and we were all going to receive many more emails than we could possibly organize or file and possibly even read. And so email had to evolve into a world where what if you could just store everything and not have to sort of deal with deleting them, managing to a fixed resource size. And, and that's the kind of extrapolation. And you can do that along very different dimensions. You could say, imagine a world of infinite bandwidth. What would that look like? And how can we sort of build to that world? You could say, imagine a world where you could execute retail stock trades with no fee, you know, and that's Robinhood, you know. You can sort of do these sort of things, which start out being science fiction, but eventually converge towards reality and truth. And so I think that's a great exercise to sort of get out of the present is pick various constraints that we have all, again, taken for granted that the box that we live in is sort of the world as it is and ask, what if we relax that constraint? We had infinite compute cycles or infinite bandwidth or infinite storage or the economics changed radically. Like, what could we do then? And I think that's a great way to sort of reintroduce vision and ambition in your product. That's, that's a really great advice. Look for those boxes and edges and imagine they didn't exist. What would happen in the future? Exactly. And sometimes they happen. I mean, one that we would never wish on the world, but imagine we all had the socially distance and everything became online interaction. You know, sometimes science fiction happens and we've lived it. We've been in a Black Mirror episode for the last year. And I think you've seen that in terms of technology, it was a 10-year accelerator in terms of certain technologies, things like distance learning and conferences and e-commerce had a huge acceleration during that period. I teach a course at Cornell Tech with a friend, Chad Dickerson, and we have a module on risks. You know, we talk about the various macro level risks, everything from war to pandemic that can happen. And for two years, we actually had a picture of a virus that looks a little bit like the coronavirus on the slide. And this year we got around to that and said, that's no longer a risk, that's a reality. And, you know, so those kinds of things can happen and, and the best companies and the best technologies adapt and adjust. This leads right into our next section on innovation at scale. So large traditional enterprises understand the importance of innovation, but often fail at it. Google has been able to launch multiple category defining products almost in a repeatable successful way. What can large enterprises learn from Google? So I do think that Google is a unique experiment in history. And you know there are other companies like Amazon and Apple and Facebook that sort of operate at Google scale, but it's a little dangerous to fetishize these companies and sort of try to emulate them. And it'd be like wearing the uh, black turtleneck for Steve Jobs. You know, you're sort of uh, getting the trappings, but not getting some of the other values. So I wanna be a little careful about prescribing things. 
I do think that Google has done a really good job of being ambitious. And that's one of the things that I certainly learned coming from a previous career at Yahoo, which at the time, it's hard for people to remember this, it was a wonderful company. I learned a lot. I have nothing but love for my experience there. But when I came to Google, the ambition was so much greater. They weren't looking for a good quarter or a product that sort of grew up into the right. Every product did that. That was just the internet at the time. Everything was up into the right. That just wasn't interesting to the founders. They wanted to do things that were really profound, deeply disruptive, really meaningful. You know, Larry and Sergey, from the beginning, the failure mode they were concerned with was not missing this quarter's numbers or something like that. It was becoming boring and, you know, just a giant cash machine like, you know, not to pick on a company, but IBM, you know, where they were huge, but not particularly innovative or interesting or, you know, exciting. And so they really set in motion this culture where what is rewarded is ambition. The kinds of pitches that Larry and Sergey taught us to do and that they liked for Google Photos, for instance, would be to come in with some crazy idea, like what if we gave everyone a camera? You'd have to have a, a rationale for that. Like I've done the math, turns out there's only 7 billion people on the planet. I think we can get the cost of goods down to $100 and I built out the model and we'll start small and you know it'll work this way. You know, now you had their attention. They'd look up from their laptops and actually pay attention when you were doing crazy talk, like let's give everyone a camera. Now, again, you had to have the underlying theory of how this was all gonna play out. You couldn't actually do that without a plan, but you know, that was the kind of thing that got their attention. And if you look at what Google's done with things like Google X, these are not innovations that are features or even companies. They're reinventing entirely new industries. Like let's rethink transportation or rethink life sciences or rethink retail or telecom in light of what Google can bring to the problem. And so that's the kind of ambition I'm talking about. The really moonshots is sort of the, the term of art that people use to describe those. And I think that's what's kept Google exciting. The only other thing I'll say is, and I think we'll talk about this more, is that while we all celebrate innovation, I think there are many micro innovations or simply optimizations of existing products that are under celebrated. If you take something like Google ads and you can move that 1%, that's incredible. The sort of output of that effort might dwarf a new product in a new area for many years anyways. So, you know, there are a lot of things about optimizing and innovating within the framework of existing successful businesses, which go under celebrated. And um, I think that needs to, to change. Awesome. Digging into that a bit more, is there any consequences of having a vision that's too big? Other companies are trying to follow it. And, and you said don't follow it blindly, but if other companies are trying to adopt this, is there any downside of being this bold? Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. That's one of them is sort of we have epic successes. We also have epic failures. And, you know, you have to be willing to absorb those. That's part of the process. Another thing I would say, you know, a lot of students that I mentor ask me, should I go to a big company or a, a startup? And I often start asking them questions, which usually start with what's your risk profile? Do you have a mortgage? Do you have a family? Are you sending money home? Like, the ability to fail at scale is a privilege. Companies like people have to ask themselves, 
does this match my risk profile? Can we afford to fail in this way or innovate in this way? What is our approach towards how much risk we can absorb? Because while we celebrate the successes, you know, they come at a cost and Google's successes too are part of a portfolio approach towards trying new things. We feed the winners, we celebrate the winners, they become thriving businesses, but we also have a portfolio of efforts that didn't make it over the line. You know, companies and individuals have to think that way about a risk portfolio and, and do what makes sense for them. Amazing. So launching a new business and scaling it to 10, 100, or even a billion users can take a very long time. And you've worked on many category defining products from scratch. How have you kept the teams motivated around the product vision? It's a great question. And I think, first of all, to keep them motivated around the product vision, you have to have a product vision, you know, and you have to instill that product vision. You have to be able to answer the question, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. And the answer has to be something that's inspiring. You know, it can't be to make the company money or to clock another day at work or so that I can get promoted. Those are not product visions. You know, those are personal agendas or corporate agendas that may be fine, but they're certainly not inspiring. So you really have to take a step back and ask, why are we building this product? And hopefully you have great answers to that, like to democratize learning or to make information universally available and accessible. So those are things that are durable product visions that you can keep referring back to, to inspire people. Back to my point about optimizations of existing products, it's often easier to inspire people, you know, on a zero to one basis and harder when they're coming in year 10 of a product that's already successful and reached a billion users. How do you get them motivated? And some of the things that come to mind for that are geography. So the product might be big in Japan and you're trying to take it to the rest of the world or just the opposite. Like the Japanese users haven't yet discovered this product. How do we make it relevant for them and expose them to it? Another one is scale. Like a product may have early signs of success and your job might be to scale it. An example of, you know, a near miss and recovery is like the Twitter fail whale. There was a time, those of us old enough remember when you'd go to Twitter and you'd get the fail whale and, you know, they did a fantastic job of re-architecting that product to scale. And, you know, what an amazing effort. It wasn't the founding of Twitter, but it was that critical moment where if we don't throw all hands on deck and get this product to scale, we're in an existential crisis. Another example is spam and abuse. So, you know, a product can have great early adoption. I would say Twitter, again, in the early days, it was just a bunch of Silicon Valley folks tweeting at each other. And then suddenly it became popular. And, you know, along with that popularity came the trolls and the abusers and the bad content. Honestly, a problem they're still dealing with, but you know that's another sort of chasm products have to cross and a sort of all hands on deck effort to sort of figure out how do we live in a world with malevolent actors and people who are exploiting the system, not just using the system. And there's many such efforts like this along a product's journey. Another one is monetization. You know, For products at Google, we can sort of late bind to a monetization strategy. You know, we can actually grow the product. And now that it's successful, we can think about what is a way that we can monetize this that is in the user's interest. And, you know, that's a late binding. Other companies don't have the luxury of sort of doing that later in the process. And they have to think about how to incorporate that in the early going. But the point is, it's not all about innovation in zero to one. There are these problems through a company's life cycle 
uh, that emerge. And I think it can be really inspiring for a person who lands on year 10 and says, I've got the advantage of reach and audience. I've got, you know, a billion monthly active users of this product, but boy, do we have problems. Boy, do we have debt. Boy, do we have legacy. And boy, do we have opportunity to go solve those in innovative ways. Many companies struggle with alignment and making sure everyone's pointing in the same direction. You've managed teams of thousand plus employees. What are some best practices of making sure that people are aligned? Communication, obviously. I mean, I think it's become even more important in the current COVID environment. There's a quote that I first heard from Jonathan Rosenberg, and I'm sure he heard it from Bill Campbell, and I'm sure he heard it from Andy Grove. You know, this goes back, but it's repetition does not spoil the prayer. As I mentioned before, first you have to have a vision, and then you need to communicate that vision, and then you need to communicate it again and again and again. And so, you know, this isn't something where you tack it on the wall or post it to the internal corporate website or tweet it or, you know, and then forget it. This has to be lived and embodied and referenced on a daily, hourly, moment-to-moment basis. And so as a leader, you know, the things that I think you most need to do are really embody the values that you want to see in your organization and in your culture. And honestly, it's the little things. It's not, you know, the all hands sort of statement. It's how you show up at work every day. And some examples about that I think are important and I try to practice. One is punctuality. Like if we have a meeting at 10, I try to be there at 10, no later than 10. And I try to set the expectation amongst my team and my staff that we start meetings on time. And the reason to do that is not to be a control freak. It's because time is the one thing none of us have. They're not, you know, printing any more moments. You know, we have a finite amount of time and respect for time is a value I want to instill in the team. And so that goes with getting to the meeting on time, making sure that no one is extraneous to the meeting, you know, and wasting an hour or half hour of their time, ending the meeting when we're done, you know, just because we booked a half hour on calendar, if we're done at 18 minutes, there's 12 minutes people can go, you know, be productive with, or if they need to take a walk, have a drink, whatever refreshes them for the next effort, you know, but sort of showing that time is our scarce resource here and we're going to respect it and honor it and respect each other's time. Another example sort of related to meetings is inclusivity. People talk about that in terms of hiring and DEI and things like that. That's all important and great. But how about in practice at meetings? Are you looking around and saying, you know, John, you haven't said anything. Mary, would you like to contribute? Especially people that are introverted or shy or hesitant. You know, meetings, as we know, tend to be dominated by the same loud voices every time. And creating a culture where it's not tolerated that people are cowed into holding their opinion privately or intimidated to share because they'll be attacked. And, you know, you have to actually embody that and bring that to how you run meetings and then instill that so that the subsequent team meetings run that way and sub meetings run that way. Again, these are not sort of things that are tacked on the wall. They're sort of embodied in how you live. And then it gets down to everything, right? In your culture, who are you promoting? Who who are you acknowledging? Who are you sort of referencing as exemplars? That's what I think is most important as a leader, sort of the moment to moment. How are you living? How are you behaving? Because people look to leaders. This is something Patrick Pachette, the former um, CFO of Google, um, 
talked about, um, he would often gather new directors together. And I had the fortune of attending one of those meetings and listen to him say like, at the level of director, you're sort of a role model, whether you like it or not. So people are watching you. They're watching your expression in meetings. They're watching how you show up to work. Um, they're watching what you do at that offsite. And it was really inspirational. Patrick did a much better job of inspiring than I'm doing right now. But he was basically saying, you know, you're on the other side of the table now. You are a leader and you have to behave as a leader 24-7. It's not performative. It's not something that you sort of, you know, do on demand and then you go back to being yourself. You really have to embody it because people are picking up more from the way you are than anything you're saying or slide number four on the deck. Those were great lessons that were given to me. It's amazing. Thank you. Moving on to our last section on career advice for product managers. So looking back, what has led you to be successful in your career and what advice do you have for product managers starting off early in their career? I think the best advice I've heard and I've given is really around a learning mindset. If you think about this not as a, you know, achievement or sort of a plateau that you're aspiring to, but the main thing you want to do is keep learning. And sometimes those can be negative lessons like, boy, I don't like doing that. That's hugely valuable to figure out early in your career. Like, I don't like doing that can really spare you a decade of grief and pain and, you know, wasted time. And so if you think about your career steps as learning experiences, the hard part, and I think crucial, is that you digest them. And once you realize you don't like learning that or don't like doing that, the next step is to stop doing that and to sort of get into a new situation and a new learning experience. So there are these points at which you sort of have to, you know, take the final exam, if you will, where, you know, what have you learned and what are the consequences from that? Is it that you'd love to develop a career as a PM in machine learning, or I much prefer something closer to the end user. And I'm, I think of myself more as a uh, consumer facing uh, product manager, and I, I'd rather veer in that direction. All of these are great, but um, what's not great is to stagnate and to sort of suffer through something you're not enjoying or even worse, not learning from. The caveat that I always share is that you have to give many experiences time. So I don't think it's good to hop you know, every three months into a new experience. You really have not given it time to sort of evolve. And certainly at places like Google, it takes quite a bit of time to sort of learn how things are done, to learn how things are built and become productive. And I think that's really important. So I think these are usually measured on sort of a yearly basis. At every year, you should be reflecting and saying, am I enjoying this? Am I learning from this? Am I getting exposure to people that inspire me, good mentors? And if the answer is no, I think it's fair to start looking for another opportunity, either on your team or in your company or even beyond. The one place where I would say you can immediately head for the door is if at your company you see ethics concerns about morality or toxicity in the environment, you're allowed to head for the door that day, that moment. You know, nobody should endure those things. And, you know, it's not your job to stay silent. Barring those cases that I hope no one ever experiences, I think it is important to sort of give these opportunities a chance to sort of play out. But once they have to reflect and ask yourself, are you still learning? Amazing. 
Now, looking back, knowing what you know now, what are some things you could have done differently as a product leader? Well, first of all, so so much of the world has changed. It's a really hard science fiction experiment to say, if I had a time machine, what would I do differently? And in some ways, the answer is everything, right? Because we have the benefit of hindsight. You know, I remember when I founded my company, the term MVP meant most valuable player, right? It did not mean what it means today. And I had to sort of reinvent that methodology by brute force and sort of stumbling through it. And I remember, and this is my own experience, we took our research out of MIT and we basically hung a price tag on it and asked, does anybody want this? And the answer was a resounding no. And finally, we were presenting to a would-be customer and a kindly engineer took me aside and said, look, we really don't need what you're pitching, but what we do need is a Perl script that would upload a file to the CDN And I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, but that would only take five minutes. And he said, great, do you have five minutes? And he pulled out a chair and I sat down in his office. I wrote the Perl script and basically they wrote us a check. And this little dopamine hit went off in my brain. I said, I get it now. It's not that you build what you want and hope somebody likes it. You build what they need. And that's the way to win a customer. And it was so satisfying and gratifying. I sort of ran home and cried, Eureka, I've discovered how it works now. You know, like I had invented MVP. You know, that lesson was very visceral for me. And I became almost an anti-technologist CTO. I was CTO of the company that I founded. And I was trying to drag all of my PhD friends out of the clouds and back into the customer's problems. And, you know, eventually it turns out that our technology and differentiation was relevant to them, but we first had to solve their sort of zero order baseline problems before it became relevant to them. And so I had that experience of like very viscerally learning how to build product, how to engage with customers, how to build things that people want. I think I was a late bloomer and, you know, this was back in the 90s, so you couldn't just boot up YouTube and watch 10,000 videos from you and others sort of walking people through it. We had to stumble through the first generation of this. But, you know, if I had to look back, I could have saved a lot of time and energy if I could sort of send a transmission from the future about how it's supposed to work. But again, no regrets. The, the, the experience was so visceral and, and important to my development, learning it the hard way and the slow way that I, I wouldn't trade that. Going to the very last question. What is the future of product management in your view? Any trends that product managers should keep an eye out for? You know, I think product management needs to be taught. And that's one of the reasons why I agreed to speak with you today is that I think in a lot of ways, engineering is a more mature discipline. You can go get a degree in computer science and become a software engineer. And people know what that means and know how to test for it. My wife is a designer, and I think you know early in her career, there was no practice of design, but it has really matured in the last two decades. And you can go get a, a, an education that teaches you how to be a designer. And I think, honestly, product is behind. I think most of the education in product has happened in the context of particular companies where the practice is actually radically different. A product person at Apple is different than Google, is different than Microsoft or Amazon. And I think 
education and certification. Uh, it would be great if there was more knowledge sharing, more community for product. And so I think that is the future of product is to sort of break down the silos and the, and the walls and better share best practices and our knowledge, you know, really celebrate that as a community. So I think that's, that's what the future looks like. And that's why I'm here. Well, thank you so much, Bradley, for being here and for sharing your knowledge with us today. The advice that you gave us around innovation at scale, what makes a good PM and the future of product management uh, is top of mind for product managers and product leaders that I speak with. Pleasure, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and check us out at productfaculty.com where we offer a fully live advanced PM skills training program for senior product managers. Thank you.